Hello and welcome to What Goes Around. I'm Eamon Murtagh. And I am Deb Grant. And we like it that way. Today on the podcast, Eamon is speaking to Aaron Trinder, producer-director of a brilliant documentary uh, which came out recently called Free Party, A Folk History, all about the link-up between the travelling communities in the UK and the free party movement uh, raves, some of which I presume Eamon frequented uh, when they were happening all around the country. The film, if you haven't seen it, is absolutely amazing and I'm really looking forward to hearing uh, your conversation with him, Eamon. Yeah, it was actually brilliant because uh, there was a moment when I was watching the film where I suddenly started seeing footage of somewhere I had been 35 <laughs> I knew that would years happen. ago. When I was watching the film, I was waiting for footage of you to show up, genuinely. I was looking out for I, Honestly, I was looking around and there was a moment where they had like this uh, footage of a raid from Lechlade. And I just remember seeing something and going, oh, that, like, you know, like a tiny door in my mind had opened up. <laughs> And there I was, but I couldn't I couldn't actually spot myself. Oh, but, yeah. I was looking forward to seeing you yeah. gurning in a doorway somewhere. <sighs> Thank God there were no mobile phones in those days. <laughs> but before all that, we're going to season your musical appetite with a little bit of salt. But that isn't even all. Tell us who else we welcome today. We welcome the guest DC Lee, of course, soul singer with Style Council and Wham as well, which you might not have known about, and also an accomplished... Uh, solo artist in her own right, Eamon, has a little chat with DC Lee. Let's pod, let's get to podding right away. Let's pod it out. Eamon Murder, it's been a long, long time. Tell me what goes around. Well, I'm going to talk about something that uh, I have been mildly obsessed about for the last three or four years. Mm. Um, And I think when I first thought I was going to talk about this, I was going to be angry, right? Because, um, well, my favourite band, Salt... Mm. Yeah, Inflow Productions mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. So I've just loved them. I mean, I just think they're the best thing since like Massive Attack and, and Tricky and that kind of era of like laid back, soulful, funky, groovy stuff. Absolutely love everything they've done. They've done a phenomenal 11 albums in four years. That is incredible. Considering 11. the quality. That's, it, that's the thing, because I mean, listen, I, I've got nine of them. I think there's two, <laughs> I, two I haven't bought, but that is mainly due to not having enough money. I mean, at one stage, they released five albums at once. Mm. And now I, I can't get five albums in a month. <laughs> I'm getting all five albums by the same people. <laughs> anyway, so they have been amazing. And the, the quality has been really amazing. And I've been waiting to see them live. And then the other week, they just suddenly went, Salt Live London. Mm. Next Thursday. <laughs> so let me see. That it's two weeks before Christmas, right? You're announcing a date in London. Where, so I've got to get a babysitter, right, mm. on a Thursday, mm. which is not going to fly anyway because our babysitter's a college person, so she's got she's got school in the morning. Um, and, you know, it's just... Oh, I've been waiting for it for so long. I was kind of fuming. And then the, the next day, I, I was there, ready to buy the tickets. The tickets are £100 each. No, I, I saw like, the controversy that this caused. I was upset, right? I was very upset because I just thought, you know, any time, £100 a lot. Mm. But two weeks before Christmas, that, mm. that's, I'm just, I can't do it. I can't do it. You know, because it's like, it's £100 for that. Then it's like £75 for the for the train because mm. I can't book in advance. Cause I, so I'm going to have to get the, the expensive tickets. There's two of us. That's 150 quid. So that's 200, 450 quid. Then there's the babysitter. So it's mm. now talking like 500 nicker mm. for a night out on a Thursday you know, to pay for the babysitting and the taxis and all that kind of stuff. So obviously couldn't go. And I was fuming, fuming. And I was it thinking, was a bit obnoxious. I'm surprised that they did it that way. I understand there was an element of it that 
was kind of in line with their whole mystique, you know, yeah. last minute, yeah. da da da. But like, I think it's really frustrating generally when bands like I understand their mystique and whatever but like it's a bit shit to like make things as difficult as possible for people who've been supporting you I I admire their little you know undercover we do what we like we're Mm. outside the system thing that's very cool but I also want to bloody see them yeah (laughs) I also want to be able to you know I, I just not everyone has that much money knocking around and just the the fact that I've been so into them for so long and literally hanging out for them to announce a live date and then it comes and I just couldn't do it. And I thought, 100 quid is outrageous. And then I saw what they put on. Mm, did you see the, I the did. footage? I did. Fucking hell. I did. It was that very high spec. Amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Because they, they had like... And this whole like arty intro where you kind of went in through someone's front room and then there's all these weird like sort of um, boxes, plastic boxes full of artworks and stuff and album covers and then get through into this massive warehouse space and they had like five different stages set up. So they did, because they do all sorts of things and some of it's like very orchestral. Mm. So they had like an orchestral section and some of it is like, uh, you know, just them as, as a band. But then also Inflow produces Lil Sims. Yeah. So the little sim stuff is involved in that and clear soul solo work, you know. So there's all these different aspects. They're all quite different and they're all on these beautiful different stages. It just looked, and from everyone I spoke to who went, it, that it was absolutely phenomenal. And um, I was kind of annoyed at them. But uh, you've got to take your hat off, haven't you? It's I mean, I imagine good. the ticket prices had a lot to do with the actual high production yeah. value of That's the event. The Once you saw it, you were like, okay, that makes a little bit more sense. Because otherwise it did feel like, why are you alienating the people who've supported? Yeah, I don't know. It just felt a little bit um, like a rejection. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, and it's an interesting thing with them because because they just have done what they want and they, mm. you know, they, they kind of rock up and say, oh, here's five albums. But they did give them away for free. And so you think, yeah. well, listen, okay, you gave me a load of stuff. I can't really be cross because you want to do your gigs in your own way. And they're doing more in Paris and all around the, around the world and stuff. And, I, you know, hats off to them because it looked amazing. Mm. But what I'm just thinking is this guy in flow, what a, what a absolute phenomenal factory of music yeah. he's become because you've got two, three and three now three clear soul albums they're all brilliant they're all really really good <laughs> you've had at least two Lil Sims albums produced by him absolutely amazing you know set in America and like if you want to go down a really fun YouTube wormhole <laughs> Uh, type in um, American rappers react to Little Sims <laughs> because it's brilliant because like, they all just like who is this woman oh my god <laughs> she got fire coming out of her and stuff it's really funny and they don't they honestly don't know what to make of it because she is like the videos especially are like really you know phenomenal to, to watch and very idiosyncratic very like only she does it like she does it you know yeah I mean? and they they're just like blown away and they're all like big sort of gangster mafia types who look like they might shoot your ma yeah. in a second but then the, within a few minutes they're just going oh this this, <laughs> this has got flow yeah <laughs> so oh, the, it's so cool because I feel like this is kind of the future of UK music and I think it's really interesting because 
the music industry has changed so much and it's so difficult for artists to make money and also yeah. be creative in the way that they want to be creative. So it's amazing to see artists that have completely just done their own thing. And I guess putting on a one-off gig with two weeks notice, charging loads of money because it is so high spec and just do, is just part of the whole pattern of doing whatever the fuck they want. So yeah. you kind of have to applaud that. That's the thing. I wanted to be cross. And then mm. I thought, I said, well, A, you've spent the money on that. And then I thought back and like, you know, four years, 11 LPs plus three solo projects, plus two or three other productions, you know, that he's done. That's just an amazing amount of work. And the, the worst of those albums, they are still a really high bar of quality. Yeah. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're really interesting. I mean, the, it did two albums called Air and Air 2 which are basically like orchestral choral pieces. They're, they're like, you know, they're, they're like sort of modern classical music kind of vibe. Yeah. Um, and it's not for everyone, but it is conspicuously high quality. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The, so everything they've done, the Beatles only made 12 albums. <laughs> they've made 11 already. Yeah. What? Where is this going to end? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It is amazing. And I think it's a testament to what artists can do when they don't have the constraints of like label yeah. management, you know, an expectation of wanting something to chart. You know, they've really um, set a precedent for other artists. But Eamon, hopefully they'll come to Bristol. Do you think they'll just go on a world tour now and just put you out of your misery? Yeah, I, I, I don't think they're ever going to do any of that stuff mm. that normal bands do. I just, yeah. I think because they have you know literally set up their own model and 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 it has worked yeah you know it's not just that they've released 11 albums in four years it's that they've released their 11 albums and you know they've sold well and people have loved them and they're critically acclaimed you know what i mean and they just keep coming out with more and more great music do you know yeah. and like when you look at someone like lil sims she is going to be huge do you know she, she every record gets better and better mm. And she is being taken to heart in America. You know, the the sky's the limit with these people. And I kind of just, I'm just like at a stage where I've been a fan for a long time. And yeah, I was disappointed not to get in on that. But I, I just got to take my hat off and say, wow, on your own, exactly how you want it. Don't follow any of the traits that, you know, why should you get on the road and kill yourself for two years playing yeah. every, you know, if you don't have to. Yeah. Why should you? So don't do it. Yeah, Get out of the capitalist machine or lean into the capitalist machine, but in your own way. I can't really tell what it is they're doing. But Whatever one it is, because, it's good. Yeah, I mean, like, so they've had all these albums out and they've, they've released them all on, on record as well, which is great. So, mm. so, and they've sold really well. I know that because every time I've ordered one, it has taken six months for it to arrive because <laughs> they're going to do it themselves. So yeah. they've done really, really well. But also they've they've given them away on MP3s. You know? yeah. so it's, it's not like they are just grabbing the money. They're giving back and they're, you know, they, they're just a phenomenon. And I think in 10, 15 years time, people are going to look back at this period of productivity from Inflow Productions and just say that was a real high watermark of the UK music scene. Yeah. Watch this space. You call it. Watch that space. Yeah, yeah. More salt, please. <laughs> Lovely. There's been a lot written about the rave phenomenon about the music, the technology and the fashion, about London, about Manchester and occasionally a few other places such as Ibiza or the superclubs of Ministry of Sound. But perhaps the most important catalyst in the entire scene was the way that the traveller community took rave around the country 
and gave it away for free. Now, a new film by Aaron Trinder, Free Party, A Folk History, takes a deep dive into the lives of the people who risked everything to bring parties to the people. It is the foundation stone of the entire movement that has for far too long been hidden under moneyed excess and the success of dance music. This film, I assure you, is an important document, and that is why we're delighted to welcome Aaron Trinder to the podcast. Hello, Aaron. Hello, lovely to be here. Well, it's lovely to have you, and I really, really enjoyed your film, uh, Free Party. It was, I mean, it was amazing for me because uh, th- that was kind of uh, my my youth. So yeah. <laughs> when I, I saw a video film of Lechlade, which was a party mm. I went to 35 years ago, something like that, 34, 35 Ooh, not, years ago? Not quite. I think How long in, with, my nerd, with my nerdy head, I think it's uh, nearly 32 years. 32. Yeah. Well, in that just, case, it's just, just before yesterday. Castle Morton. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, seeing a that. slip of a thing. Yeah, yeah seeing <laughs> that again was just like, a, oh. It was funny because, the, the, you know, the images come up. And I just, mm. you have that unearing feeling of like, oh, I, I recognise this. And I, then I was looking for yeah. myself, but I couldn't find myself. Which yeah, is yeah. probably just as well. Yes, absolutely. Well, it's when, you, when your parents or your grandparents see it, I suppose. That's where you've got to really be worried. <laughs> it's my children now, that's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was interesting, the, the entire film, for me, captures like a, a really overlooked part of the whole electronic music phenomenon. Because we have a lot of stories about how Acid House got to London and Manchester and yada yada. And we've got a lot Mm. of stories about the bigger clubs and the bigger DJs and all that sort of thing. But really, the heart and soul of the scene at the start were free parties, weren't they? Yeah, I mean, I suppose where the film's focus is, is definitely something I thought had never really been tackled before, never really Mm. looked at before, which was that there was something in the early Acid House parties which was not just a club-based phenomenon or even a warehouse party-based phenomenon, but it was the combination of that music in a field somewhere which very quickly kind of got uh, taken away from the people who experienced it. Um, because, you know, what happened is the the big... Uh, they were illegal, but they were paid parties, the mm. big M25-type things... They um, obviously were choosing sort of uh, large spaces often out in the countryside or aircraft hangars or the like to throw these big ticketed events. And when the kind of gangsters moved in and the legislation uh, uh, 1990 kicked in, what happened is a lot of those people had sort of had a flavour of something magical, which they kind of didn't realise they needed but once they'd had a flavour of it they didn't want it to go which was I suppose meeting in a a somewhat more um, wild free different kind of space than they were used to and at the same time what had been happening in an earlier generation obviously was that the the traveller movement had been doing things in the outside for decades Mm. since the since probably 1970 is the earliest I suppose recorded free festival which was often thought of as fun city and then shortly afterwards there was things like the first Glastonbury which was largely a free festival Mm. and then um, the Bath festival and the likes and so that that kind of remnant of the hippie movement uh, uh, which formed the free festival scene had actually been going for 20 odd years and of course a lot of the early acid house story even the name if you like was very inspired by the hippie movement Mm. uh was you know suddenly 
football hooligans had, you know, long ponytailed hair and they were wearing baggy, bright coloured clothes. So there was a real nod back to that. But the the real meeting of those two worlds, which was this, the, you know, the, the free festival world and the, the rave world, kind of didn't happen till about 1990 when effectively the, the sort of ravers who no longer had a home They'd felt this sense of a utopia of a new world opening up, encountered the traveling movement that had gone through a great deal of, of challenges, certainly with um, Thatcher's demonization of them as a subculture, but also obviously with the, the Battle of the Beanfield. And the meeting of those two scenes was a kind of, uh, in a way, I feel, a kind of extension beyond the original uh, story about um, acid house club culture to a real cultural phenomenon almost beyond music but obviously powered by uh, the amazing new music that had come over from from chicago and detroit it's really interesting like, the film opens up and shows part of the battle of the beanfield and for those listeners who are too young and don't remember or, or don't know about it this was a, a big crackdown on on travelers moving around basically yeah and the police came in and they just smashed everyone's buses they attacked people it was it was absolutely brutal and you've mm. got some um some footage of of that at the, at the start of the film that's really quite shocking and really that's not the end of it either because although you can kind of uh, see the sort of state's anger at this way of life once it got married to the party movement it became mm. a real uh, i mean it was a, it was a running feud wasn't it between the two of them it was like a cat and mouse game that just went on and on and on yeah i mean i think the the travelers had obviously had state and uh, police oppression and media demonization for getting on for 20 years but so had the young people who were going to acid house parties because that was the new folk devil of the day wasn't it mm. you know it was um it was talked about in parliament and you know there was all those sort of famous kind of headlines in the sun and and in a way all kind of um i i you know i, ha I have to say all predominantly right-wing governments but other governments too they they kind of divide and rule and what they do is they usually pick on minorities they usually pick on specific uh, subcultures that are easy pickings so for a long time in the in the 70s and 80s the travelers were easy pickings because you know they didn't exist within the mainstream they lived on common land they did things that probably annoyed farmers you know that sort of stuff so they were easy pickings and of course in the in the 80s at the end of the thatcher era thatcher talking about there being no society well suddenly all these kids getting together uh, yes, taking drugs, listening to loud, repetitive beats uh, and kind of loving each other and also the, the cross um, across the kind of social strata. So, you know, definitely all of the um, the race barriers and, and mm. the sort of the, the class barriers and the town and country, uh, gender, uh, sexuality, all those things kind of melted away during Acid House to a certain extent. So that's a threat to the status quo, which likes to keep us in our boxes, mm. um, particularly young people. You know, like as long as we're good kind of consumers, they're happy. But 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 suddenly when you're doing things for ourselves, amongst ourselves, organized by ourselves, it's very scary for the state. So I think in a lot of ways it was the meeting of those two cultures, which, you know, on paper wouldn't really fit. Suddenly, wow, this is a real recipe for uh, state and media anxiousness or, or 
anger and a great kind of opportunity, I suppose, again, to, to have a folk devil of the day. Mm. I think um, it's interesting because like there, there was so much good obviously came out of it. You know, like the, mm. there, there was, like you said, it was a, a great breaking down in um, the way people treated each other and, and a coming together of people from different areas. There was the yeah. whole aspect of football violence, which was, it's kind of hard to explain to people nowadays, but that was normality. My hometown yeah. was Saturday, Friday night, fighting when the pubs shut at 11. People would yeah. come out of the pubs and that's what they would do. That would be the highlight of those people's week. And the only other highlight they had would be the trouble they'd have after a football match on a Saturday or occasionally yeah. midweek. And that was really regular, ordinary Joe was doing that every week. And all of that melted away um, mm. for a few years while this music and the drugs and the whole scene came together and, and started bubbling up. And it's really interesting how much kickback that got from the state. I was talking to mm. Emma Warren, who, who's written a brilliant book called Dance Away yeah. Home. Yeah, fabulous, um, yeah. And one of the things she said when we were talking about um, sort of dance music, which let's not forget isn't like a protest music of the 1960s. Most of the, there's hardly any lyrics at all. And, and the lyrics yeah. that are in them are nonsensical to a large part. You know, they're just little, <laughs> little, little samples of people saying, come on, or whatever. Yeah. But she said something really interesting. We said, she said that we know dance music is political because of the way governments react to it. Mm. And when I watched your film, I think one of the things that really brought it home is um, not only the sort of police reaction to it to begin with, which was a little bit of amusement and a little bit of containment. Yeah. But when the, there was a point where the, the film took a very dark turn, and I think it was when the, you were showing the, the roundhouse parties mm-hmm. and there was another party that was out in a, in a big um, industrial warehouse. And the mm. police showed up, and not only did they show up, but they showed up like in riot gear without numbers without any yeah. identification and they they were there solely to smash the place up and to teach those travelers a lesson weren't they mm. yeah and um in a way it was a real echo of the beanfield not saying it was comparable in level of violence but the the, uh, the there seemed to have been a sort of a tactic that the the tories had, had used with previous groups that were basically getting under their skin. So they they did the same with the miners. They effectively brought in a paramilitary or somewhat um, secret sort of police force with no numbers. So no, no answer, no, no way to, you know, be answered back to no kind Mm. of um, responsibility if somebody does something wrong. And uh, the same thing obviously happened at the Beanfield was that effectively they drafted in army, people from the army or people from other police forces, again, with no numbers to to effectively give those people a kicking. You know, that was, mm. you know, and, and it, it, it seems unimaginable now, but I think we're kind of getting a bit more of a sense that this is becoming uh, institutionalised now, you know, mm. as in that, that if you just, if you don't like a subculture, you either legalize them out of the equation by creating new new laws or in back in those days you know you effectively go and give them a kicking mm. um and so yeah acton lane was the famous example where that's the, the police of, yeah. uh, the police effectively surrounded it and rather than saying right you've got to turn the sound system off now this is um you've gone on too long you know using the law instead what they did was they just battered the battered down the doors and they um started smashing the decks up and they started beating people up 
randomly. Um, so it was, and the interesting thing about that was that there was no actual arrests. Mm. So nobody was arrested for a crime. They were just taught a lesson. And that's yeah. a kind of, that's a, you know, from the playbook of, you know, totalitarian regimes. That's that's not really a legal process. And it was, what was interesting about that, obviously, it was a, clearly it was a way that the state thought that they were going to get the upper hand was to just scare people into stopping doing what they're doing. But of course, it, they were, they was, these were young people who were very driven by this fantastic utopian experience they'd had. And in some ways, what it meant was that they got even more kind of riled up to do mm. it. And so, you know, Spiral Tribe particularly became kind of almost, how would you describe it? They well, it almost went, it became radicalised. didn't it? And, uh, yeah, they became almost radicalised. Even the way they dressed, because, you know, this was the age of global hypercolour T-shirts. What a great idea they were. Show yeah, yeah. But, you know, <laughs> this was this is like, you know, it was it was caftans, it was bum bags, it was bright clothes, yeah. it was baggy jeans, it was, you know, real bright. And suddenly Spiral Tribe were pretty much dressed like burglars or, or paramilitaries. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? They were, yeah. they were all in black. It was, the music went very, very dark and hard. Yeah. It was, you yeah. know, it was, a, it was a, a real, it was a fight for survival, I think, from, from their side of things. Yeah, I think I think they would they openly say, and actually Mark, who's just written a really good book, it'd be worth getting him on the podcast at some point, uh, A Darker Electricity, says their transition was f from fluffy to tough. So they mm. started off, you know, it was all about being loved up, colours, long hair, you know, kind of echoing back to that hippie ideal. But as soon as you kind of get uh, that level of intensity, and of course they were all arrested at, at Castle Morton because they were the last people there and they were potentially targeted and um, the sound system got impounded, etc., etc. Et all their stuff got impounded. But rather than folding with that, they actually kind of toughened up their image and, you know, I think it was over that period where they decided to yeah, shave their head, get the black bomber jackets. And that, that was also a slight response to them getting more um, kind of, you know, people turning up, trying to kind of mug people at the parties as mm. well. So the the size of the parties get so big that you start getting crews turning up, trying to mug them. So, you know, they were they were toughening up. And uh, but you're right. Very soon after that, the music seemed to go from that kind of, you know, everybody feel good. You, know, you talk about the sort of dance music catchphrases and they were those sort of before that they were very uh, much you know the generic you know everybody's free yeah. you know hands in the air kind of thing but then after that it was you know psycho it was uh, hardcore it was all <laughs> yeah. these things there was a, there was a, there was definitely something that happened and it was like the music the image everything kind of shifted away from that to unity to uh, a tougher edgier feeling it became a very us v them situation and unsurprisingly really because not yeah. only did they have this kind of crackdown from for you know physical crackdown from the police mm. force but the government of the day also went after them with the criminal justice bill which of yeah. course you know a lot of people look at that and say oh well you know these kids were having parties it was a bit loud and you know they shouldn't be allowed to break into these warehouses and yada yada mm. all good reasoning but when you look at what was in the criminal justice bill, there was so much more. It basically outlawed uh, a gypsy life. And yeah. there were loads of other little clauses and bits. And just the fact that it was the first piece of legislation that I could think of, which outlawed an art form. You know? Yes, it, yeah, it, you, absolutely. You can have music, but you can't have this type of music. That's, yeah. that's incredible that that happened. 
Well, it was, it's, you know, a lot of people have said that there was echoes in a way of what the Nazis did, you know, was they outlawed swing, you know, and jazz mm. because it was, it was, uh, for them, it was a kind of, you know, unclean uh, racial kind of thing. And I think to a certain extent, there is a sort of racial element to this because there's a sense of, you know, this kind of dark devil's music that, that's repetitive, that's, that's making us all... Uh, making our children go into trance-like states. You know, there's a certain element of that puritanical worldview, which is you can feel in the in the legislation around the CJB. But but you're certainly right that in a way those were the headlines and those were the things which helped to push the legislation through Parliament because, you know, uh, generally Middle England was a bit an, annoyed by young people going out and having a good time at the weekends without you know it being sanctioned by the state because we also got to remember like you said earlier you know the pubs shut at 10 30. Mm. i mean that you know the, the modern world we live in uh albeit you know we may think that people making a noise young people making a noise outside in a way that drive that young people had back then changed the world that, to the way, world closer that we're in now in that we have festivals where music stays up, up uh, uh, going on till six in the morning. We have mm. clubs that we can go to. We have not late night bars. It, it, the, all of that really came from the fact that there were young people pushing for, for a new kind of life. But you're right that the legislation in the CJB was the headlines were about raves, but actually a lot of it was the slow erosion and the slow uh, shift away from matters like trespass being civil issues, mm -hmm. which which would be where a farmer of land might well say, look, excuse me, traveling people, you know, you can't stay here. I, I bring my cattle and I, you know, I have my sheep here. And there'd be a negotiation and eventually people would move on to a criminal thing. And, and the criminal aspect of it means that actually it's not even the farmer or whoever's on adjacent land who has to become um, annoyed by this. It's just an immediate prison sentence if you have for example, more than 20 vehicles in a place. Hmm. So it's it's also the destruction of a community for traveling people because there was a safety in numbers. So, you know, if you're on a traveler site and you're a small amount of uh, people, well, you're more under threat because you have uh, less protection in terms of the, the community you have around you. So there was definitely a sense that it was killing multiple birds with one stone which was let's blame these ravers and these travelers and let's let's push through all sorts of laws mm. about access to common space rambling and now of course we're seeing laws that are even more draconian that are being pushed through on a regular basis that in fact nobody even knows the name of they're so obscure they've been pushed through yeah. during lockdown and i mean and now you know protest you're not allowed to be a nuisance well what, what is yeah. protest if it isn't being a nuisance? I don't really understand. Absolutely, but. yeah, noisy protest. I mean, yeah. it's quite shocking, isn't it? What what kind of quiet protest is there that's ever been mm. effective? You know? Yeah, and he, uh, but you can it, for me, it, it, it felt like that moment really was you know the start of a very slippery slope, and it's it's no wonder we are where we are because because that was allowed to to happen really. And I, yeah. I felt watching the film, it was it was good that you didn't just stop there. That you did show a little bit about how how the groups, the various traveller groups, uh, reacted to that. The way Spiral Tribe, for example, went off into Europe and continued yeah. to do their thing under a, a more liberal kind of governmental view, I suppose. Um, yeah. But the, you know, the the scene didn't stop. And although in England it became much more of a, a legal 
framework, uh, the music and the things that happened in society, you know, the, it's like the cat was out of the bag by that stage. Like yeah. you say, the licensing laws were going to change. The kids were no longer going to be satisfied for, the, you know, to have the same rules as they their, their parents had had, for example. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's no doubt that in some ways the system uh, absorbed all of the things that it that it wanted to absorb, that it could absorb and legalise. So, you know, the festival movement that we have, I mean, you know, we've got to remember that in 1988, 89, you know, there was Glastonbury, there was Reading. They were basically a band in a field that stopped at 11 o'clock. It was yeah. a muddy field. Everybody went to to bed. You know, there, were, there was the free festivals, which were more wild, but again, they they, um, they were largely sort of clamped down upon by that point. But the festival movement effectively was was entirely changed by this generation of people who wanted to listen to dance music, wanted to go to stay out late, but also all the creativity around that. So, you know, the, the likes of Lost Vagueness that became mm. Shangri-La, the, the modern festivals all around the world that are not just a band in a, in a muddy field. They are, you know, uh, immersive experiences to some yeah. degree. And yes, the pubs and the... And clubs obviously got late licenses, but it, but 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 the problem I suppose is that is is that it's opened a door and obviously it's legalised things, but now those things are so expensive. I mean, it was only a day or two ago where everybody uh, you know I knew tried to get Glastonbury tickets and couldn't, for for example, mm. impossible. Even if you did get Glastonbury tickets, it's fabulous experience that it is. It's it's expensive. It's expensive once you're there. So young people will always have this urge to stick together to do things together to make things uh, together to gather to a party to all do all those things and and their options are sort of lower and lower because actually even the mainstream that has accepted that people want to go out and and party and and enjoy each other's company and and get high do all of those things that they do is so expensive and inaccessible for a lot of people or it's only accessible for wealthy people mm. so there's a whole swathe of society that that will have to find another way in some way so i do wonder whether as there is there is a resurgence in in free gatherings happening across the world although they are under a lot more state uh, pressure it's almost an inevitability because what do people what do people want to do well they have to gather they have to be together they have to make their own entertainment and so yeah. I wonder whether the time is sort of ripe for that. And the young people who've seen the film actually have come up to me a lot of the time and said, oh, we're doing it, we're doing it this way. And, and they're, they're, yeah, they're that was inspired quite, by that. quite uh, an eye-opener, wasn't it? The amount of people who were, who were talking like that. Uh, 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 we had a little Q&A session after we watched the film at the Cube in Bristol. Mm. And it was interesting to, to hear... Uh, another generation really excitedly talking about like trying to ape those days and trying to do their own thing with it and I think um, I mean one of the reasons I really enjoyed the film and, and why I think it's such an important film I don't think this is just like something that's a, a good chewing gum watch I think it's like this is an important document because there wasn't access to cameras and being able to record things like we have nowadays there was no internet mm. there were no mobile phones um, and I know you had, um, uh, uh, sorry, what was the name of the cameraman guy? Oh, yeah. So there was Justin, who uh, was probably one of maybe a handful of people back then who who'd, who had a camera. So yeah. know, massive thanks to them for their documenting from within the scene. But it was certainly not 
normally the done thing to yeah. have a camera it was not cool you know you were you were probably uh, thought of as police and in fact Justin had an experience where he he had somebody uh, very you know very much kind of uh, get angry with him because he did have a camera even though he was documenting it as a participant rather than um you know from outside the 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 scene he was a real outsider to be honest because in those days uh, people were very wary of cameras and certainly at an illegal party where everyone was you know doing something that was definitely you know not up straight and narrow um, yeah. There was there was quite a lot of uh, worry. If you saw someone with a camera, you kind of instantly presumed it must be some official body because video cameras were expensive and bulky and difficult things to have. Mm. But the footage he got is absolutely amazing. It just captures a time before all of the internet changes and the technology changes that came following the 90s. It, it really is an important document. Yeah, I mean, uh, um, Justin got some fabulous footage of some of those key kind of 1991, uh, 92 uh, uh, free festivals slash huge raves, and they and they they are kind of magic because, and when I was when I you know discovered them, it, and it wasn't just Justin. There was a guy called Gareth Morris who who did the quite well known um, documentary called Operation Solstice, which was about the Beanfield actually, and he'd been covering the traveller movement and the, 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 the sort of shift from the travelling scene into the rave scene during mm. that period as well. And there were three or four other people. Andrew, my, my, uh, one of my editors and collaborator on the film, he was filming quite a lot of that stuff in, in Europe. So there was five or six key contributors that really without, without them, I wouldn't have really have had much of a, of a, of a film. But um, I think the, 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 the fact that it was a secret scene, the fact that it was a... A hidden world the fact that in some ways you had to really work to find those parties you know mm. oh yeah There's oh a set, yeah, yeah. You, you know and sometimes sure. you wouldn't find them you know i've spent you, many a night driving around the countryside without yeah. a clue listening and listening absolutely. for the, the distant thub of a sub base somewhere and absolutely and that was part of the charm was that albeit you know we we are we're so used to everything being given to us on a plate now um you know, <clears throat> all music is is there for us all the time. All film entertainment is there for us at all time with the click of a button. Mm. Most entertainment is a is a, a a button click, and we've got the tickets. You know, apart from <laughs> ironically, apart from Glastonbury. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it, most things are designed to be easy for us. Whereas actually, to find these events, it really was a magical mystery. You really did have to search, and part of the search made it all the more precious when it did happen and the fact that it also happened outside of the the sort of legal structures or the conventional structures and that people did make it between them made it even more precious i think and that the, and the fact that it was so in the moment and so few people did document it I think even adds a third layer of magic to it. Mm. Um, and the, it was what was really interesting. And it's one of the final things people say in the film. And it was, and I, I put that in, in a way, because people kept saying the same word over and over again. They kept saying it was magic. It was like magic because in some ways it was, it was a kind of a, a thing that seems impossible, you know, as in, mm. it seems like people have made something from nothing that, uh, I suppose is the sort of takeaway in some ways this this idea that people can make something from nothing uh, that is like magic that's for themselves for each other 
that's largely a, a selfless pursuit that people, you know, I mean, uh, the people like uh, uh, Jess and and uh, Dave from Circus Walk, you know, they 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 would they would laugh. They would say, "Oh, we did it for nothing." You know, we'd hand round the bucket just to pay for the for the generator, but we'd never expected any money. Mm. They literally lived this lifestyle week by week because they just loved to put these events on, and they went to exhaustive effort to decorate it to make sure there was places that people could get a drink and you know it was like but they did it because they came partly because if they came from that free festival thing they did it for the enjoyment you know the for the for the joy of making people experience something amazing and that that is an incredible thought now in our very commercial world well it certainly is and it's a fantastic film and i really appreciate the work you and your crew have done on it uh, I think uh, if you weren't part of that scene, it will be a real eye opener for you to see quite how political and how stressful it all got in the end. Mm. And also how every single person in that film who was part of that scene still talks about it with a kind of misty eyed love that you just mm. you just don't get about most subjects. Do you know what I mean? There, there is there's a genuine life changing thing that happened to all those people. And it's so great that you've managed to preserve it in your film. Oh, it's, I'm really happy to be able to share it. And, you know, thanks very much for your kind words and support. And um, I think that it, it does translate to other generations. Obviously, mm. it's fabulous for people like you and myself and people of that era to kind of look back in some way. But but the, the joy has been actually seeing uh, that, but also younger people watching it now and realising that that world did exist and that those people weren't really any different from them. They just lived in a slightly different environment with a different worldview. Um, but that they clearly crave for something like that of their own. And I really hope that in some way the film can give a little bit of that uh, inspiration for, for for new generations to to do their thing, to find their thing and to make it you know even more wonderful even more surprising even more magical than what we did or what people did back then well that's a lovely thought thanks so much for coming on the podcast aaron that was a really interesting discussion thanks very much lovely to be here what we're gonna what we're gonna what we're gonna do right here is go back way back back into time that's right name that tune Our guest today is one of the finest British soul singers of her generation. Whether leading the line or offering support from the background, DC Lee has made an incredible contribution to the UK's music scene. She's created underground bangers and graced the top ten, both as a solo artist and part of collaborative projects. Having sung with the likes of Wham and the Style Council, as well as Guru's seminal jazz hip-hop project Jazzamataz, she's had an incredible career. But now she's back front and centre with a new release on Acid Jazz Records called Don't Forget About Love. DC Lee, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for that introduction and thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, it's our pleasure. And I, I have to say, I was saying to you just before we started, you know, I've been listening to your voice for so long, uh, you know, since I was a teenager, really. And uh, it, it's, it's really exciting to have you back. What oh. was it that kind of um, gave you the impetus to... Because this is, this is one of your songs, isn't it? And it... it it's brand new on acid jazz. So yes, tell us a little bit about how 
it happened that you came back and decided now was the time to do something new? Because it's been a while, hasn't it? It has, and I'd love to tell you that. Thank you. So, okay, yeah, it has been a while. Uh, I forgot actually how long, but when I was reminded, I nearly fell off the chair. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but life does fly by. And uh, But the thing is, in between living life, I've always been making music I still mm. write and uh, my daughter is a is a musician so I'm very much like listening to what she gets up to and pay attention like that and I think I got a little taste for wanting to come back again because I mean apart from the fact that I seem to have accumulated a new bunch of young fans which is fabulous mm. um, that in itself has made me want to kind of come back and you know see what's up see what's out there <laughs> yeah. so you were writing all the time it wasn't like you stopped dead I mean obviously I know you were singing still but um you actually did keep writing and making stuff all through that period right yeah I mean not as heavily as I do because uh you know but sometimes songs come to you and you just have to write them down mm. so nothing recorded but loads of stuff uh in the old back burner waiting for the opportunity to master them a little bit and it was only when uh the opportunity to uh make sorry cut this track with uh acid jazz came out uh i started to start writing a little bit more with it now yeah, you know focused on it yeah. yes that's the word i was looking for yeah, yeah. i saw a lovely interview with uh, curtis mayfield once and he, he was saying like you know songs like a bird that lands in your hand for a minute that's beautiful you, 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 either, you either catch it or it flies off and... that's so true so so true mm. I literally just had a new song the other day and I was sitting in the bar for God's sake and that's <laughs> that's really annoying because but I had to had to get it down so try, lucky I didn't drop the phone in the bar that's, that's the that's the danger isn't it it, it it is but I'm really happy I got it down you need to get your house <laughs> set up like Prince in his Paisley Park you have a microphone in every room <laughs> uh, I need some of that Prince money that's for sure uh, yeah that'd be good that'd be good well, <laughs> Listen, <laughs> big new single on Acid Jazz, and what a great label to see Acid Jazz uh, bringing you out as well, because you know, just like yourself, they've got such a such a place in British soul history, haven't they? They really have, and that's exactly why. I mean, I couldn't have come back if you want. There was nobody I was that excited to do anything with, even though I did really want to do something. But obviously, when I got when I bumped into my very old friend Eddie Pillar mm. again. Uh, he was like, what are you up to? I was like, nothing, give me something to do. And he was like, Let, let's do it. And this is where we, this is where we're at. Oh, well done, Eddie. He's a good lad, that one. <laughs> he is. I did my, I done my time as a, as a totally wired DJ and, uh, oh. yeah, I, I miss I, I used to go into the, the Bethel Green Studios. Uh, oh, bless the, you. So you're the, a real music boy. Yeah. Before the you pandemic are. and all that, I was doing a radio show every, every oh. month in there. But then since then it's been kind of like remote. It's not quite the same. So I miss, oh. miss all the gang. If you see them, say hello. I them. absolutely will, sweetie. <laughs> I absolutely will. So... I mean, it's great you've got this new stuff out, and I think we need to just touch a little bit on the things that have gone before as well, because I think a lot of people um, kind of know your name from around various projects, but I mean, it, you've, you've hit some really big markers in the past. I mean, I, I, I didn't really realise this, right? but uh, I watched the Wham! documentary on Netflix the other day. I didn't realise you were the pre-Pepsi and Shirley. I didn't realise you were there first. That's all right, hon. I mean, you know, everybody has their little foray into the into the music business, and yeah. I didn't even I didn't realize that they were going to be so big. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. I'd been working with people before Wham, but the first people that I would imagine I'd say became famous, if you like, it would be Wham. Amazing at uh, th that time was you know they were big for me as a as a a twelve year old lad. I was like, oh my god, I'm a bad boy too. <laughs> <laughs> 
I bet you still are. <laughs> no, no, I, I did really. No, 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 really. But you know, like, you. I went back and listened to them the other day, and I just thought, oh yeah, you can really hear that now. You know that that it likes it. You know, with all that happened afterwards, at George's career and stuff, it was a oh, lovely yeah. touchstone for you to have that in your in your past. I had no idea that it would turn out like that, but mm. it was everything with those guys was so incredibly organic. Uh, that you know, Shirley and 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 Andrew are still in my life today. But um, yeah, just, we just did not know where this was going to go, and uh, I'm very, very grateful to Wham for, you know, introducing me to the world, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have this thing. I did watch that film. I don't know if you've seen it. That like Twenty Foot from Starlight, I think it's called, something like that. Um, where it's, it's all about backing singers. And oh, I haven't seen that. No, it's a really good watch. I think it's on Netflix. And thank you. I'll watch out for that. I'm gonna... No, I think you'd enjoy it. And what's lovely about it is you finally get the camera just turning away from the likes of Sting or, you know, Wham or whoever it might be and actually saying, who are these amazing singers that are 20 foot away from where everyone's looking? And without them, the whole thing falls down. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's the thing. The the whole thing with tracks and and making music is is always very much teamwork. I mean, the artists, all of us, you know, to, to make what you really what really works it is a teamwork thing and mm. uh yes backing vocals are just are just as important as uh as lead vocals because they all complement each other and that's meant to be the point mm. but did you did you find it um was it an easy choice for you to to give the limelight to other people or did you always want to jump up front and center i'd be totally totally honest with you i have never really liked being in the front and the okay. reason i became a backing singer is because i'm a i would imagine i i'm kind of a a uh, frustrated musician. I was too damn lazy to learn anything. <laughs> and so I started mimicking with the voice. So when I heard other vocalists and, you know, they, they're doing something, I started to develop this vibe of like uh, what I call vocal melodies, mm. but they're also backing vocals. They're, so you hear something and I could always find something that can complement that, not not take it over or be the, the top one. I just like what sounds good. There's a real skill to being able to you know, place things in the mix properly, yeah, isn't Yeah, I think so, yeah, yeah. And that's not my forte, but sometimes I hear things and I just like to, to get the best of, of something, you know? Mm. Uh, anything I work with, anything I work on, I like it to be as the best it can possibly be. And if whatever I can bring to the party, uh, that's what I will do, well, you know? it definitely shines through for sure. And, you know, like although you say you don't like being front and centre, I mean... I've got used top, to it. I top, like it now. Top 10, mate. Top 10. <laughs> you know what I mean? I had no choice. I had no choice. I had to do that. Oh, because that, that was one of those songs that, I, I mean, again, with the songwriting, I'd never really had an opportunity to have songs that I've actually written uh, get to the forefront. And mm. um, when I was given that opportunity, of course, I took it and I ran with it. So, yeah, I'm really glad I did. Because, uh, yeah, number two. Number yeah, two, see the day. that's amazing, man. That is amazing. I mean, like, just... I mean, it's a long time ago now, but I bet that now just oh. gives you a, a real rosy glow just to think, always. oh, man, I did that. I did Always, that. Wow. always. If, I'd ne- if I was always saying if I'd never done anything again, I've still got that. And I'm very proud of that. I was very yeah. young and I was very, you know, sort of focused on just writing this beautiful song and getting somebody to listen to it. And the fact that they listened and it blew up the way it did always blew me away. And I'll never forget that feeling. Yeah, always I happy. <laughs> well deserved. And, Thank you. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine recently, a guy called Kieran, who is going to be fumingly jealous today because he is a, a poor weather obsessive and, <laughs> and often goes on long internet rants about how the Style Council 
are the most underrated British soul band of all time because what amazing work you did. Thank you so much. I think uh, that that's what I really, really loved about the Style Council because I was working with a bunch of serious musicians. And when I say serious, not, you know, snotty, just people that really appreciated music. Mm-hmm. We loved working together, blending the stuff. The, the Star Council gave me the most freedom to experiment with the BVs. Paul literally just let me go. There's only once or twice that he'd really know what he'd want. And of course, mm-hmm. that's what you would do. And if there's anything I could add to that, of course I would. And, you know, there was never any egos. It was always a really fabulous, fabulous way to work. Yeah. And it was, I thought it was a really interesting thing because... Well, let's be honest, there was quite a lot of antipathy towards Paul moving on and doing that at the time. So Mm. I feel, looking back, that the Star Council did not get a fair crack of the whip from the media and from, you know, the scene around at that time. I mean, were you aware that there was a lot of pressure coming from his background and, you know, people who basically just wanted the jam part too? (laughs) Yeah. Did you feel that? Oh yeah, we did. We did sometimes, but we also really felt the love of the new fans or the old fans growing with us or growing with him, should I say, uh, growing with him to, to his next venture. And basically anybody who's a mod, they understand that the love of music is going to just keep driving you. You're not going to keep, you know, that that was his fans. Yeah. But everybody else, everybody else who was listening, they just appreciate music for the for the sake of music. Absolutely, and the mod sensibility is, is born of soul music, anyway, isn't it? That's that's. Oh, absolutely, from, so. absolutely, absolutely. Which is why you know. So I think I, I don't know what that was all about. I, I'll never really understand that sort of thing. But we, when it started to not be fun, I mm. think it was time to you know we know what we did, we know what we were about, and we've always been very proud of what we've done. I just think when you look at it now, it shines brighter than it ever did. I've been going back and listening to the other albums, and there's even that whole album that wasn't released. <laughs> Thank so, you for saying that. <laughs> I mean, the, Thank, yeah, amazing work, really amazing work. And uh, I, I just, I, I, you know, I'd like to pass on from from myself and a few others just to say, you know, that that stuff was really on point and uh, and still stands up today. So. Thank you, and I agree with you. <laughs> it's important stuff. So let's Thanks. talk about some of the things that uh, got you into this position and uh, gave you the love for music. Um, I've asked you to pick out a few phonographic memories for us. Yes. And um, uh, and I love them. <laughs> <laughs> soul boy, you. Well, you there's, soul, sometimes you there's get people, a soul boy out there. <laughs> sometimes you get people on and I'm kind of just being polite saying, oh, that's nice, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like these. I like these I'm, a lot. I'm really glad you do. you got taste. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about Lonnie Liston-Smith and oh. Oh, what a trap. Space Princess. Is it right? disco? Is it jazz? Is it fun? Right? Is it everything? Ex- You've got me on there. That's exactly why I picked it. it. That track totally blew me away when when I first heard it. I mean, in the days that I heard that, there was a lot of good stuff around Olves, mm. but he just kind of stood out with that. Like you say, is it what is this? Is it disco? Is it is it jazz? Is it? And it just blew me away. And I, you can listen to it over and over again and still discover different musicianship going on in there because mm. there's so much going on in there. I love that. But and also his vocals on it. You know, yeah, he's focused yeah. on that. I love that. So, yes. You're the princess of my dream. Another you I never find in me. 
Jasmine Taz, I've got to throw this in. Come on. Yeah, I know. I was about to ask you. So you, go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you knew I knew it was coming. I, I also deliberately picked it because you can't imagine when I first got a chance to work with Lonnie Liston Smith, I had to keep picking my jaw up off the floor and try not to babble like an idiot. Yeah. Because, you know, I, I was totally um, totally how you say or, or starstruck. Yeah. I mean, you know. It was a funny thing, but um, he really loved my voice, and I just kept going. But your music, and there's a lot more other Lonnie Liston Smith stuff, but Space yeah. Princess was just the was just the standout for me. That's that's what made it stand. I remember t- talking to him about it, and he was really, really, he was really impressed. Not impressed. He was really, um, what's the word? He was very uh, grateful for the for the praise. But mm. I was telling him, you know, I was like, it's so good. So, yeah, I can't, I can't stop going on about it. So, no, <laughs> Shut up. No, and I, I listened to it again the other day, and you're so right about um, hearing new things in it all the right? time. Yeah. There's like layers of. So as, many layers. That whole thing about it not being jazz, not being funk, not being disco, but it's a bit of everything. And the more you listen to it, the more you can hear little licks in the background. And I, I, <sighs> I think one of the things I'd advise anyone to do if after this they go out and, and go and chase that, that single down, just. Yes. Listen to it once. Then listen to the vocals. Then listen to the bass. Then listen, yeah, to, the, you know, listen to each you, part. Absolutely, you got to keep you got to keep listening because there's so much going on and it's all so fabulous. It just yeah, yeah it takes your breath away that track. You managed to um, get involved with Guru's Jazzmatans project. I mean, did, yes. you, you did the tour, didn't you? I did. I did. I did the first European tour, and, and then can we and have then a I, roll call? Who did you play with? <laughs> okay, I just want to show off right now. Thank yeah. you for letting me show off. Okay, so DC Lee was on stage with. Let me say, obviously the fabulous Guru. Yeah. But Guru uh, incorporated into this particular tour. We had Roy Ayers. Oh. We had uh, Lonnie Liston Smith, and we had the the master Donald Bird. Oh my oh, god! Wow! Oh my god! So I mean, I'm, I don't think I don't even think I got paid for that gig. I don't think I was around. <laughs> That's <laughs> I was, all right. I'd take that one. That's yeah, they, I, I think they took advantage because I was just so starstruck. I was all up in there, you know. Yeah. But uh, it was just the most fabulous. And I mean, it, it was a great time. The guys were brilliant. Guru was. Bless him. God rest in peace, my darling. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was an amazing, uh, not just the most beautiful rapper, but his taste in music and the and you know he it was it was a pleasure hanging with him mm. uh, in regards to talking about music, listening to music on that tour bus, getting the getting the lowdown on that tour bus from some of the tracks we were into from Donald Byrd and from Lonnie Liston and from Roy Ayers. So oh. we were just slapping it up, just playing tracks and you know questioning them and oh yeah. man, it it was and in between that. Play some gigs. Yeah. <laughs> in between that, we did. A, oh yeah, we think we managed to get a few gigs yeah, in. A few gigs here and there, you know, just, just to break up the conversation. But I mean, I can imagine. Just, I mean, first of all, I wouldn't be able to speak in that company at all. But um, oh. 
I mean, it's hard not speaking to you now, to be quite honest. Oh, bless you. Thank you. <laughs> but, honestly. Um, you know, someone like Donald Byrd. Oh, yes. I mean, just, I mean, I must have 10 albums by both of those people. Well, exactly. You know I mean? And exactly. They, they never leave the bag. You know, when I play out, there's always at least one Royers, always at least something by the Always. Always. You can't go wrong. You just yeah. can't go wrong there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that that was the most... Am- I think I, that was it. I think after that, I was like, oh, you know what? I've done it all. I'm just going <laughs> to st- stay at home and look after the kids or something. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was a bit blown away. Yeah. yeah that's I mean, it, was, it was such a great project. One of the things I like about um, some of the things you've done in your career, like, like the Style Council, for instance, is it introduces types of music and artists that maybe a lot of uh, people weren't quite au fait with, do you know what I mean? So yeah. when when the Sound Council came out with all this incredible soul-influenced music, there was a lot of people who were looking for the going underground guitars who suddenly went, actually, do you know what? That's, that's really interesting. And then they go down this rabbit hole and find this stuff. And Jazzmatazz, certainly, I, I know for a fact growing up, I was... I was lucky because I used to fall asleep to my mum's... My mum had one of those radios you could put on for an hour. Um, oh. <laughs> so I would fall asleep to Sounds of Jazz by Roger Bannister on Radio 2 or something. Nice. So I was really into jazz anyway. But, I, I, you know, it was kind of like a little guilty secret I used to carry around with me. Because, you know, 15-year-old kids didn't listen to jazz. You know I mean? Right, you yeah. But I, I, you were a bit like me. I, I was a weirdo. Imagine being like that Anna girl. Yeah, you know, I, yeah, I just yeah. I just really got into this music that I couldn't actually do anything about because I, I you know, and, and the rare occasions got an, an opportunity to uh, learn, you know, my mum killed herself cleaning houses and stuff, mm. got, got, did the, you know, paid the money for me to do piano lessons, violin lessons. I think flu even. I mean everything. Yeah. So lazy. I didn't do any of it. So I just made up for it with <laughs> made up for it with my voice. <laughs> well, you did all right. You did all right. That's thank you. Good. Thank you. But yeah, that that Jasper Test project. Just uh, suddenly, I was able to talk about that to my peers and you know turn them on to things that I was really into. And it just stopped being a dirty word for a while, and then became the hippest thing in the world. And then right that whole period, acid jazz records, of course, and talking loud records. That period was so fruitful for for the UK scene, especially, wasn't it? Oh man, it was so was. It was. I mean, it was an explosion of the most fabulous music everywhere you went. It was just like coming out of. It was like coming out of the water, wasn't it? Mm, yeah, In those yeah. days, it was fab, fabulous days. Yeah, lovely stuff. So um, let's move on to your second choice. So I'd never heard of Ned Dahoney. Dahini? Yes, Dahini, da- 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 I think. Dahini, yeah. I, thinking, da- I think it's me Irish. I want to say Dahini. <laughs> <laughs> but this track, to prove my love, is uh, a funky banger. Uh, and let, I'm, I'm going to Discog straight after this. Oh, right. Copy. Tell me about so, this. Well, I mean, do you know, it's just like what you said. I mean, honestly, because I started doing uh, this... Uh, like a bunch of interviews and stuff, which is really fabulous. They, I'm now being asked about music that I like. So I've always had like a list of stuff that I've got. So I can just pick it, pick it out depending on who I'm going to be talking to. Mm. So I was checking you out too. So I thought I'd pick this. <laughs> and, and it is, it is it's, it's, a, it's a smooth, but it's a dance groove, but it's yeah, so smooth, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I strive to make music this smooth. I mean, that is just so smooth. And... Uh, you could just listen to that over and over again. You never, ever get bored of that track. You can put that on the rewind and just keep yeah, playing, yeah, right? Yeah. So it's just, um, it just reminds me of a, 
you know, that's it's like, you know, like you're out somewhere, it comes on. When you're in the club, you're having a conversation, you just stop talking, you stop eating, you stop everything, you just have to listen to this track. That's that's what I feel about this. I think sometimes smooth can become too polished and yes. lose something in there. You know, that happens a lot with soul bands, I think. I where, think you're right. Where they, they get to a point where they're recording, especially nowadays when there's a million billion plugins and extra bits you can polish up the music. It gets to a point where... Yes, I get you. You can't hear them playing anymore. Do you know what I mean? All you can hear is the sheen on the top of it. That's right, but you can in this, can't you? Yeah, in absolutely. this track, you can you can hear that real raw musicianship, not too much going on. Almost sounds like a a couple of takes. Do you know mm. what I mean? It sounds like they're all playing together. It's just so smooth. So, what, what oh, about yeah. did you did you come across this? Did you grow up listening to this sort of stuff, or is this something I'm, you found later? Oh no, honey, I grew up listening to all of this. Mm. All these things, I grew up. Uh, listening to and as I was just trying to remember off the top of my head the time frame because oh let me see I'm really bad at maths but <laughs> in 1970 I would have been 10 so upwards from that age upwards I was into pop music mm-hmm. Gary uh, oh no I'm not gonna say Gary Glitter not anymore <laughs> yeah, we'll, uh, we'll sorry one, sorry about that sorry just wipe <laughs> that one out sorry Mark Bolan yeah. uh whoever was around at that time you do, do you remember so yeah, that, that yeah. Sort of well, like, I, I mean I was, I'm 10 years younger than you but I can remember right like, Sort of 77 watching the Mark Boland TV exactly. show. And I, I was Ex- a big David Bowie guy and all that stuff. There you go, David Bowie, those guys. But then, um, somewhere along the line, and I can't remember where it was, it could have been just going to the local youth club. Yes, we did have those in my day. Mm-hmm. And, and luckily for me, there was somebody really into soul or jazz or something. And they just started playing a couple of tracks, which I just remember writing down the name, going to the record shop and getting that. And then when I went to the record shop, I got to listen to other tunes, similar, etc., etc. So I can't remember where the Ned Doheny track came in, but uh, I obviously, I just can't remember when that was, but I started to just pick up on different music and I would spend, like a right train spotter, uh, a lot of Saturdays and Sundays at places picking up old records that were recommended by DJ friends or other friends who were into music and I'd hear something that they play. You know what I mean? Like, like a lot of people still do now, like a lot of people at Acid Jazz still yeah, do no, now. Yeah, no, yeah. Well, no, I've seen them all in flashbacks. <laughs> yeah. after the shows. Don't worry about right? It. Right. Yeah. That's a, so, so that's where it came from and, and I can't remember exactly where, but... It was in my quest to, to find good music, and it's one of those ones that just sticks out, and it's on my list of absolute faves. Even yeah, I've, even yeah. I've got loads. Yeah, well, of course, yeah. I mean, I can tell there's a, a big burning love there and there, and it was this was something you did regularly. This is like your your pocket money was spent every, on these records. Yeah. Everything, all my 
pocket money, everything, any money that I had, it was I started listening to music and gathering it. Mm, yeah, yes, without yes. even realizing what I was doing, I just loved it and wanted to listen to the vocals and the and the, the musicianship and yeah, yeah, just used to I used to, blow, used to blow me away even then when I was a kid. Yeah, I mean, coming up like that and, uh, and 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 trying to get into the music industry and obviously I mean you mentioned earlier about you know being a girl and doing all this. I mean, mm. what was that like? Because I've worked with especially I won't you know I'm not going to name names but older DJs especially. Uh -huh. are a little bit like this is my domain i'm going to cover yeah. up my record label and <laughs> <laughs> yep i'd so so know but you know what one just you just whittle away and whittle away and they forget that you're a girl you're just one of the boys and i just used to get in there and just you know, and and sometimes just you know maybe when someone's popped off to the bathroom i have to have a quick peek in the old box and yeah, then and then yeah or something's dropped down there oh oh what's that like? yeah that's it <laughs> a bit cheeky a bit cheeky so whereabouts did you go i mean was this uh, were you out in clubs or just the odd concert or was it just at home with the radio and your records um, a bit of all of it, a bit of all of it. And talking about concerts, concerts, I remember now that you've uh, brought the memory up. So can imagine your, can imagine your very, very first uh, live concert, not pop band, not anything. Imagine going to see as a, how old was I? I think I was about 10 or 11 and I wasn't even meant to go, but I lied about it and somehow <laughs> got in. And I ended up going to see Earth, Winds and Fire for the first time. No. You don't even know what that did to me. Oh, you can't man. even. <laughs> you can't even know. I, so it was on. It was on yeah, after I'll that. I'll bet. I'll bet. If that, anything's going to touch, it's going to be that. Come on. I've, I've <laughs> always had this thing, and I've, I've mentioned it before in the podcast. So you can go in the records and check. But I, you know, when they say if you could go and see any live band anytime, yep. back yep. through time. Yeah, people always say, "Oh, I'm going to see Jimi Hendrix. I'm going to see Bowie again." Whatever. Yeah. I think Earth, Wind, and Fire with the oh. emotions. Oh, come big on. Stage set. You know, uh, glamour, uh, funk, disco, soul. I, Oof. I don't. I don't. Th I think I was still left in the place, stayed in like in some sort of shock. <laughs> you know, when, I think when they were cleaning up, you know, the yeah, popcorn like, and oh, stuff. Who's this girl? <laughs> still, still, stood there with the mouth open and just like totally. Oh my god, they were so fabulous, and I never ever forgot that. And then I just started wanting to make music, listen to music, be involved in music, mm, and. Yeah. Anything that sounded like that, or even on those vibes, I was in. I was yeah, in. Yeah, because when you look at old footage of them, um, I mean, there's just YouTube's just full of glorious clips. You know, there, there are ones that you kind of you kind of know, like yeah, September and all that sort of stuff. But then you go back and you can see footage of them at massive outdoor concerts, right? Where they're just, you know, the whole. Piece hey, have you ever have you ever seen those guys perform Magic Mind? Yes. Oh yes, my! Yeah. And the sax break in the middle. Oh come on, oh. just stop, just stop that now. <laughs> that just kills me every single time. Yeah. I love that. There's just such I mean, a power to it all, isn't there? Right, know? right. Absolutely, absolutely. Have we gone off track? Yeah, oh, well, yeah I, can, I tell you what. We, well, I could chat it. with you. I could <laughs> chat music with you all day. I could chat music with you all day for well, real. That's what we're all about. And actually, do you know what? It, it's great that we we go on to a thing like that because our podcast is about being a fan and being obsessed by music and just. You know, you can't help but want to say more. You want to, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, you must have seen the original, you know, Philip Bailey and Morris White, the whole I did. The original game. I did. I did. Crazy. I didn't even know. I just remember, I, I think my ears and my jaw and I, I just, 
I remember that feeling of being totally shell-shocked. And I think when I was going home, I think, you know, like when somebody can't talk or speak and they're just being ushered mm. along. I think that was me. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was me on the way home. <laughs> yeah, I suppose after that, it was a, a foregone conclusion that you were definitely going to... Uh, oh, that set, that set, that definitely set the scene for me going into music, defo. So your third choice, something a bit later, um, Lucy Pearl, Without You. I've not really heard this, so uh, tell right. me a bit about this. Okay, now this one I hadn't heard, and this was uh, introduced to me from a DJ friend. In fact, a really old friend of mine, he's a, he's a big exec now at Sony, um, Julian Palmer. He's a very old mate of mine, uh, and he was DJing one time, and he just put that on, and I was just like, ah, oh, oh, who is that? Well, so after listening to that, I got the album too. And I mean, their tracks, I mean, there, there's some other tracks. I didn't even realise it was the same band. They did a Don't Mess With My Man, that really wicked uh, dance track. Oh, yeah. Don't mess with my man. Don't mess with my heart. Know that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I didn't know that they did that. But Without You was on the, was, a, was an album track or something, I think. But my God, I just love that track. No matter what you do. So probably yeah. won't be any good. It's just such a great track. It's I just love it. I, I love the performance. I love the beat. It's just uh, it, it's heartfelt. You know, yeah. it's a very heart. It, it tugs it tugs at the heartstrings. I love it. The performance of that track is just. Mm, yeah. it's, it's got that feel of, of you know a, a sort of later more mature soul sound you know that definitely thing. definitely but, and it chugs along with that oh just 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 so nice yeah I'm just tempted it's, to encourage you to sing things <laughs> i keep forgetting we're actually we're actually this is going out to people they're going to think we're freaks Don't worry, yeah this, this, is, this is why they why they subscribe this is the whole reason you seem to have lost none of your enthusiasm for any of this is, is that uh, the case? I mean, it is I mean I love my my grown kids now I mean you you ask them they're just like I've always got the music on when the kids turn up I've got a grandkid now baby yeah, right. I mean I'm loving it he's already I've already got him started he's doing the moves and everything he comes in this house there's a, <laughs> he comes he comes in this house there's some jazz going on there's Donald Byrd there's Royers he gets all the goodness Excellent. so you know they they they're, they're being uh, they're being fed properly on the music so top parenting top parenting <laughs> or Thank grandparenting you. I should say yeah for real uh, do you still find modern music that you like is it or is, are you kind of sort of you've got your era and you want to sort of concentrate on that or are you still finding new things that come along oh that's an interesting question it I do not as much as I used to mm. um and it's not because there there's not good bands out there or anything like that because there are 
it's just getting a chance to hear them and I don't really know where those formats are so I often wait for the youngsters in my life to play me something and yeah. then I yeah. and then I'm like oh I like that and uh, my assistant Erica has got me into the habit hello darling she's got me into the habit because sometimes I hear things on adverts new stuff and I like I like those vibes you know yeah. so I'm gonna I might copy her and try and shazam some of these adverts when you hear some of these tracks because yeah, <laughs> so yeah be, just 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 for future reference because later on if I if I'm given the opportunity I definitely still would like to make music and I love the idea of making music with some young and fresh artists too mm. you know what I mean bringing some old school to the new school that'd be yeah. that's it's always an interesting uh, situation I'd love to get you hooked up with some of the the new school of British jazz, you know. How about Blue Lab Beats? You check those yeah, guys out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm loving those boys. Mm. I love them so much. I met them. I met them too. And there is, I keep mentioning their name because there is talk. I'd like to. I just want to concentrate on this project, mm. see how it goes, see where it takes me. But uh, at the very first opportunity, I'd like to catch up with those boys because if you listen to some of their stuff, it's they're kind of young and old. So, you know, they're young guys, but mm. they've got an old ear. I like yeah, it. I just think we're we're going through a period now where uh, a lot of it's come full circle, and there's another generation who come up who are making their own thing, but they're respectful and very knowledgeable about yes. the music of the past. You know, absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Respectful and very knowledgeable. It's absolute pleasure hanging out with guys like the young like guys and young ladies like that. Mm. You know, it's, it's and there there is. Uh, I my daughter was doing something I can't remember what it was but the long and the short of it was I ended up spur of the moment at Ronnie Scott's and there was a couple of jazz young jazz artists on I think there's like Jazz Warriors I oh can't... yeah yeah Tomorrow's Warriors oh yeah. wow They're I mean so amazing, amazing amazing and then some other ba you know some other young bands which forgive me I can't remember the names but my god they were good so it gave me a lot of uh, hope yeah, you know what I'm yeah. saying yeah. yeah we did a feature on Tomorrow's Warriors because I mean I just think at the moment the way that they've invested, especially in minorities in inner cities that couldn't get the type of lessons they needed, mm. and they've invested in those kids. I think that's fab for, for fabulous. For twenty years, and now we're seeing them come through. And you know the 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 breadth of talent is unbelievable, and the fact that you know Ezra Collective won the Mercury Prize the other day. I mean, if I'd said to you five years ago, oh, the Mercury Prize is going to be won by a jazz band. Yeah, right. I mean, that's 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 just amazing, and I'm really really happy for them. It's very much deserved. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, I love that. Love so that. listen, the single's great, and uh, I, I advise everyone to run out and get it. It's on Acid Jazz Records. Oh, thank and you. It's called "Don't Forget About Love" with the B side being "Be There in the Morning." I love you. Got a B side. People don't people don't mess with B sides enough anymore. You know? They don't. In fact, we we decided to call it a double A because we couldn't really decide That's which one to put a, out. Yes. We were calling it the double A because you can just play whichever side you like best, or you can play them both, or yeah, 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 yeah. whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's great to to hear it come back, and it's lovely to see. You know, I just love. I love seeing the Acid Jazz logo on things. It just makes me want to buy it instantly. And I'm so proud to have the Acid Jazz logo on my stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, I get you. And like I said, it's nice because, you know, they brought me home, you mm. know? Yeah. So uh, what, what are the plans with it? I mean, are we, are we, are we going to follow up? Are we going to get albums? Are we going to get tours? Anything like that in the pipeline? All of that. All of, all of this said above. 
everything you said, yeah. Oh, it's, it's all still being, um, how you say, prepped. Yeah. But yes, all, all of the above. And um, when there's more to talk about, I, I hope you, you and I can talk about that. Yeah, you drop I'd love to do that again. And, uh, we'll definitely give Absolutely. you a <laughs> Absolutely, hun. Absolutely. And if you're coming down Bristol way, then I'll come see you. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'll keep that in mind, sweetie. <laughs> well, listen, it's been so lovely talking to you. And it's I, been I, lovely talking I to you. I am tempted to go on for another 40 minutes, but <laughs> I suppose you've got things to do. <laughs> I kind of do, yeah, sadly. Oh, well, listen, um, thank you so much for talking to us today and sharing your, your, your love of music. And I wish My you absolute just... pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Brilliant. And I wish you the very best of luck with, uh, with the new single. And Thank just you. to say, you know, honestly, you've been in my ears for 40 years and I, I, I love it. It's, it's so great that you're, you're still doing it. And I'm, it's so nice to talk to someone that I kind of... Because, you know, these people on records, when you're obsessed by music and stuff, they become like pretend friends in your head. <laughs> you know, don't worry, honey, I, I do that too. I kind of feel like I know Donald Byrd in some weird way. Well, you know, don't like. worry, because I do exactly the same thing, so don't worry. Yeah. Don't worry, I do the same thing. <laughs> right, it's a pleasure talking to you, and best of luck with everything, okay? Thank you, sweetheart. It was really lovely talking to you, real fun. And you, mate. Thanks a lot. enjoyed this podcast you're one of us you're one of our friends and we like you and because we're friends we love each other and we like to tell other people about how nice we are so we'd like you to go out into the world find some unsuspecting herbert and say hey go listen to what goes around podcast it's free and it's good for you and it's all about music and being a fan